Hello and welcome to the Richard Hunter interview. As ever, this is a place where I'll be discussing matters of interest with a whole range of investment experts. And what better way to kick off the new format than with someone who needs little introduction. Nick Train co-founded Linsell Train Limited in 2000. He's a portfolio manager for UK equity portfolios, and it is the Finsbury Growth and Income Trust, which is the subject of our interview today. Nick has over 30 years experience in investment management, and his approach is based on that of Warren Buffett's, involving building a concentrated portfolio of quality companies that have strong brands and or powerful market franchises. The bulk of these are UK companies, and this leads to a very different portfolio when compared to the benchmark FTSE All Share Index. So first and foremost, a very warm welcome to you, Nick, and thank you for joining us. Richard, thank you. I'm, I'm just slightly taken aback by the, um, the accuracy and succinctness of your uh, description of what, uh, what I and we do. I, I, I hope that's not going to make the rest of this session redundant, but um, <laughs> <laughs> I think I'd better, I'd better go back and take some notes on that. That was, um, that, 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 that was accurate. Thank you. Very kind of you to say. So perhaps we could start, Nick, in terms of uh, Finsbury Growth and Income. What would you say the objectives and the investment style of the trust? Yeah, I mean, I know that this can be a, a cheap shot from professional investors. But, you know, I, I, for, for me, I have to start with the observation that um, my personal holding in Finsbury um, and that of my immediate family, um, this is the single largest investment I have in a, a quoted asset. You know, I own my house as well, but, but you know, th- this, is my, this is my and my family's largest single stock market investment. And, you know, I have to say that does colour the way that I think about the disposition of the assets and indeed what the long-term objectives are that I'm you know, I'm working towards. You know, and I always I always take the view that um you know however simple it is to say this and <laughs> difficult to deliver in practice, um the the objective of seeking at a minimum to preserve the real I inflation adjusted the real after tax purchasing power of the capital, you know, at a minimum, and that it's not a trivial thing to do actually over the decades, but at a minimum, that's kind of the mindset I've got when we're choosing securities. Um, now, I will also say, and just to, to reinforce your earlier description, um, the formal benchmark for this investment trust, and let me put it this way, the way that the, the board of this investment trust monitors our performance is it's compared against the long-term total return on the FT All Share Index. So in other words, the UK, the UK equity benchmark. And Personally, I do think that that is a relevant measure. Um, I think it is likely, not certain, but I think it's likely that if over time 
you can deliver a return in excess of that benchmark quite possibly you will achieve those sort of more personal investment goals that i just alluded to that i just alluded to earlier um so yeah you know I, I, you know i've been doing this a long time very long time again as you as you pointed out and uh, you know definitely a motivation to to carry on is just that test of can you do better than the market? You know, the, the, there are lots of very smart people trying to succeed investing in UK equities, and it's it's stimulating to see how how it ends up for you at the end of any given at the end of, at end of any given period. Um, you asked a question about investment approach. Did you? I, sorry, I've yeah, been talking no. for so long already. I kind of forgot what, what the questions were. But um, well, absolutely, and it kind of leads into the second question anyway, namely the kind of um, investment themes and maybe even secular trends you're looking at uh, when you're investing funds in into this particular trust. You know, you you did mention, you know, the great Warren Buffett earlier, and and you know, let me just acknowledge yet again the influence of his thinking, his example on what I've done, what Michael Linsell's done, what other successful acolytes of Buffett have done over the decades. Um, I think really what I'm saying is for everybody who's got anything more than just a passing interest in investment, particularly if they're investing on their own account. Do, do what I've done and take what Buffett says seriously. Um, because, you know, even if the ideas that, you know, he he was associated with 20, 40, 50 years ago maybe aren't so relevant today, the principles underlying them remain relevant. Um, you know, and I, I, I would say, just thinking about stylistic aspects, you know, the, the two dominant differentiating aspects of what we've done, both of which are absolutely unapologetically copied directly from Buffett's advice have been, number one, run concentrated portfolios. You know, I think, you know, you look at everything we do, you look at Finsbury, that's pretty much the first thing that strikes people. It's a, it is a concentrated portfolio. Um, and, and the other Buffett-derived um, behaviour, I suppose, is discipline ourselves to try and transact as rarely as we possibly can to, 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 to keep portfolio turnover as low as we possibly can. Now, that is emotionally difficult, psychologically difficult, intellectually difficult, and sometimes it's plain wrong. It's plain wrong. You know, not to do anything. It can be plain wrong. But using his example, in our experience, observing other successful practitioners 
it does seem to us that you at least tilt the possibilities in your favour of doing well if you do that <laughs> or don't do yep. that. Yep. If, 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 you, if you know what you're doing and if you're prepared to ride the emotion because my goodness, my goodness, it's an emotional arena, isn't it? I mean, you know, <laughs> the start of the new year, you know, just just inspecting the scars that it, it, yeah. you know, some of which haven't fully healed from 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 twenty twenty. I mean, it, this is tough. Anyway, yeah, sorry. So so that's that. Um, what are the big themes um, in Finsbury? Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, let, 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 let me just let me just outline those. Um, that we've got the, the basically four, three and a half. Call it. I don't know. Anyway, you you see what you think. Three and a half or four, as I would see them, substantive winning ideas certainly they've been winning in the past that you know who knows what happens in the future but there's four big winning ideas um the the biggest allocation in Fensbury's portfolio a bit over 40 percent of the portfolio is invested in companies that have been or we sincerely hope will be in the future digital winners. So companies that can take advantage of this incredible, unprecedented, accelerating technology change that we see all around us, companies that have got either a technology themselves or they've got a product or service that's enhanced by changes in technology. Um, uh, 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 and we hope that that enhancement of their products or service leads to leads to greater shareholder value, of course. So that, that's actually, I think, did I say just over 40%? That's the biggest allocation that, that we have. We've then got um, mid to low 30% invested in what I, as a shorthand, call beloved or trusted, or preferably both beloved and trusted consumer brands. Um, preferably, although not uniquely, preferably global consumer brands with opportunities to continue to grow into new markets, but also the opportunities to derive new economies of scale from becoming more and more global. Uh, and you know it's you know it's interesting. This has become perhaps a more controversial aspect of our portfolio over the last few years. I mean, I know people do question, and of course we think about this as well. Question whether, oh, I don't know, Johnny Walker Black Label or Dove Soap or Cabris Chocolate. Um, and, you know, others as well. But wh whether those kind of iconic brands that have been successful for, in some cases, centuries, you know, but certainly decade after decade, can they remain relevant uh, as we get deeper into the 21st century? 
candidly, <laughs> no, you can't be sure, but it it makes and maybe this is dangerous, but it makes me feel, you know, what makes me sleep at night? You know, definitely one of the things that makes me sleep at night is knowing that we've got a significant allocation of this strategy to those sorts of brands that consumers evidently love or trust and have trusted for generation after generation. Moving on, and this is where I was wondering whether to say it's, you know, three or four. I mean, maybe associated with that second category of beloved and trusted brands. I mean, I've kind of split this out in my own mind. We've got another 16%. I'm sorry if this is ridiculously precise, but it is where the numbers are. We've got another 16% in companies that are luxury brands or clearly premium brands or aspirational brands. That previous bucket I mentioned, there are some mid-market, you know, midstream brands within Unilever's portfolio, for instance. But I've separated in my own mind a block of capital that we've allocated to companies that really are luxury and premium. I guess our biggest single holding in this category, just so we're clear about the type of thing we're talking about. The biggest single holding here is Burberry. Obviously, well, Burberry evidently is the UK's only globally resonant luxury brand. Um, And, you know, I, I, I felt it's important just in terms of thinking about portfolio structure to to make that distinction because yeah i I don't think there's any question Uh, 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 over time the the value hmm, over time it seems highly likely to us that consumers around the world will increasingly turn to luxury and premium products and finding companies that offer access, pure access to those sorts of products, that makes sense to us. This is a very, very long answer, but I've got one bucket left to, to fill, Richard, if I may, just to complete where we get to the 100%. If you add it all up and subtract it all back down, then we've got just under 10% um, actually invested in... Uh, my industry, I suppose, in asset management companies, um, particularly asset management companies with credible, I don't know if that's the right word, actually, but asset management companies with important private wealth aspects to to their business. we think, and you know, this is because it's an industry we're in. It, we know something about it. Private wealth management. We think that that is a growth industry, and that the provision of those sorts of investment services not only is that a growing industry, um, but it's it's an industry that it is also being benefited by technology change 
um, you can provide much better information quality services to customers with the application of technology. I'm sure it's something that your business is investing heavily in. Um, but there are also, of course, big uh, big efficiency gains as well from bringing technology to more and more of the um, the working practices of companies like this. So, you know, um, you know, we have an investment actually that's done quite well for us over the last uh, twelve mon- months or so. We've got an investment in Schroders, um, where yeah, that. Casanova, Casano Capital franchise to us, that's a real jewel in that that crown. That's the sort of that's the sort of asset we're looking for in in that bucket of the portfolio. Just on that, the last thing I'll say uh, on that final, just under ten percent in in those asset management businesses, uh, and maybe this comes back to a another aspect to the style, if you like. Um, 30 years ago, I took a deliberate and conscious decision to always be bullish about equity markets, always, under any circumstances, always be optimistic about equities. Um, And I've stuck to that. Sometimes being optimistic about equity markets has made me look and feel stupid, but actually over time, having that optimistic bias, you know, I think that's been a an important contributor to to our long term returns. At least you're invested when things do go up because you're never going to time it. And I've always been attracted to, and by and large, been rewarded by having long term holdings in successful asset management businesses because. When economies create wealth, as they do over time, and when markets go up, as they do over time, asset management companies, they're a wonderful way to participate in that, in that wealth creation. And, and so that, that's been a long-standing, a long-standing theme for us. So given those parameters, um, and given the difficulties which you eloquently describe um, of actually sticking to one of Buffett's sayings, buy and hold forever, um, despite that obviously being challenging at certain times. In terms of your, your top 10 holdings, for example, could you talk us maybe through one or two, clearly that's uh, going to fit into uh, the, the kind of backdrop that you've already been describing? I mean, I, I've maybe already mentioned one or, one or two of these, but... but um... Yeah, the, the the biggest holding in Finsbury today, as has been the case for yeah at least the last last year, the biggest the biggest holding is in the London Stock Exchange. Um, yeah, you know, past performance, you know, of any security of any investment manager, it's it, it's kind of irrelevant. Um, but I, just in passing, I I mean, we got few instances more rewarding or or, or representative of what we're hoping to capture than the long-term share price performance of the London Stock Exchange. I mean, you know, uh, without, you know, vainglory at all, at all. But, you know, 
we we first bought this in I don't know 2003 2004 at three to four pounds a share. Um, now 2003 that's a long time ago, <laughs> but today it's trading at 92 quid. You know, for a variety of reasons, but it's trading at 92. I mean, how wonderful! <laughs> you know, how wonderful. And you know, I think it's true to say that. With the exception of um, portfolio concentration restraints on not allowing a given position just to get too absurdly big, we've never willingly sold a share in the London Stock Exchange you know, for, for 16 or 17 years. It, it has had periods of falling a falling price or or or, or definitely underperformance but yeah it's it, it's been a great example of how you can how how owning a unique exceptionally profitable business can create wealth for you over time um let's hope let's hope that it continues to do that there was a significant announcement yesterday of course about the uh, approval from the EU of the combination with the old Reuters business. What's interesting about LSE to me is that 10 years ago, I would have put the LSE in that bucket that I was just talking about, that that sort of market proxy bucket. Um, actually, today, that holding in the LSE, I include that in our digital technology advantage bucket because there's no question the London Stock Exchange is less and less a play on volumes or even the direction of the London stock market, but it's more and more a participation in the application of yeah, technology to reams and reams of data. And, um, yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, investing in the UK, frankly, has been, and you might say, well, it's self-imposed or whatever, but it, it's it's been a frustration over at least half a decade that truly globally competitive London listed companies that are doing something valuable with technology and data that they're rare businesses particularly substantive ones and you know I feel actually really really fortunate that <laughs> the London Stock Exchange is one of those and it has been a, a major major investment for us. The, the other holding, and I have mentioned this, or at least I've mentioned it in passing, um, and I have to say, whenever my friends or friends of my children ask me for a piece of investment advice, the, the company I always advise people to invest in um, is Diageo. Um, yeah, I, I, I yeah, that that it, the 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 world's number one um, spirits company, um, premium spirits company, also happens to own the world's number one um, 
dark beer as well, Guinness, uh, which is, I'm, which is I'm, I'm familiar with Guinness. <laughs> yeah, well, it's been a great solace, hasn't it? <laughs> Guinness. I mean, as 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 indeed have a number of Diageo's a number of Diageo's products. Um, listen, you know, um, there, there isn't such a thing as a perfect company, um, and you know the. the there are holes, arguably, in Diageo's product portfolio, and a, a company as diverse as this, both in terms of brands, because spirits brands do come in and out of, of fashion, and a company like Diageo that's so globally diverse as well, and big positions in emerging markets. That, that there's always a market that's booming for Diageo, but there's always probably one that's uh, that's having a tougher time. But I find it. Again, within the context of the UK stock market, I find it hard to identify, sorry, this is a weak thing to say, but many companies that have greater, in my opinion anyway, predictability and certainty of the relevance of their products, looking ahead, not just, you know, six months, six years, 60 years, you know, it is important, actually. It is important that Guinness is over a quarter of a millennium old. <laughs> I was going to say quarter. I mean, you know, it's like 260 years. Um, it is important that Johnny Walker has been around for 200 years. It, it, it is important that Tanqueray, you know, world's number one premium gin brand, that's got well over 100 years of, of heritage as, as well. Um yeah, I, you know, I, I always think uh, uh, this is another aspect, I suppose, of the way that um, we try and think about allocating capital. I always like to think, you know, if my family could have the choice of owning a hundred percent of the equity of any business, you know, if that if our entire family fortune was based on the equity of just one company, what type of company would you want that to be? Um, assuming that you could never sell, yeah, you could never sell. Now, you know, it, it's a trite thing to say. I mean, obviously, I can point to dozens of of tech companies that have done unbelievably well over the last five years, ten years. Could you be certain that your family's fortune would be safe in that technology asset in another 20 years or another 30 years? I mean, maybe, maybe, but, and I'm not saying that they shouldn't be part of a portfolio, but but the idea of aligning your capital, your savings with the sort of predictability of those those key brands within Diageo. It makes sense. It makes sense to to me. And you know, I think it is important. You know, I said earlier that the the past in a sense is irrelevant because who knows what happens next. It's dangerous to place too much credence or faith in what happened in the past. But there is information it seems to us in the wonderful long-term returns that can be earned by owning pieces of these 
wonderfully durable brands over time. And yeah, yeah, for my choice, that yeah. would that would continue. And, and that makes the next question somewhat redundant, but I'll ask it anyway. Obviously, we've um, just uh, had unparalleled times to, during 2020. The UK market has also been under pressure for any number of reasons. Um, how's the trust been holding up over such um, a short time frame in the old, uh, overall scheme of things? Well, you know, for for 2020, the the net asset value of Finsbury Growth and Income Trust exceeded the performance of the FT all share index by about 7%. Uh, it, it, we were down a couple of percent, the market was down nine or something of that, or something of that order. Um, if you told me on January the 1st, before we knew anything about what was looming, if someone had said, Nick, would you be content without performing the market by by 7% this year? I'd have, you know, bitten your hand off because you know, if you can if you can do that, you know, two years out of five, or you know, you over that 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 that, that that's where the long-term track record comes from. So so I suppose ostensibly I ought to be pretty content with last year. Um, but I'm not sure that I am wholly, <laughs> to be honest with you. Um, yeah, one, and again, you know, we're amongst friends here. That that was a tough year. I mean, I found that a tough year. I mean, obviously there were, you know, personal concerns, family and friends being ill. You know, I've got friends who are unwell at the moment. Um, but, you know, just the challenge of, in a set of circumstances that I've never experienced before, what's the correct decision to help protect shareholders' precious capital? Um, and frankly, who knew? Who knew? I mean, I don't even know. Who knows now? I, I, you know, that's my my feeling. I, I, I. Th- there were a number of. Um, Big positions for us last year. Even though the strategy in the end did better than the market average, there were a number of big holdings that disappointed me last year. I understand why they didn't have a great year, but I might not have anticipated them being as weak as as weak as they were. And you know, I mean, Diageo, Diageo. Frankly, if you describe the circumstances of 2020 to, to me, I might have thought that Diageo, with that incredibly resilient business, very cash, I'd, I might have thought that would have done really well compared to the UK. But Diageo was, you know, it was down 10%, it, probably a little bit worse than the market uh, for the whole year. And you, you don't need to tell me why the bars are shut, you know, the sports events aren't happening. Um, you know, a company I mentioned earlier. I mean, the the single biggest detractor from Finsbury's return last year was Burberry. Um, you know, that ended the year down more than twenty percent. Um, you know, I get it. I absolutely get it. Um, I'm pleased that there were enough other things that held up to mean that 
we didn't have a disastrous year for for, for our NEB, but it still hurts a bit when a big holding falls by over by over twenty percent. So I have mixed feelings about last year, um, but there we are. There we are. We we live to fight. We live to fight another year. Knowing that you were coming along, Nick, we did ask uh, customers to to send in the some questions for you. As I can manage, as you can imagine, our post bag, as they say, was fairly full. Um, we certainly haven't got time to go through anything like all of them, but perhaps if we could uh, whiz through two or three. Um, first question from a customer, you may not consider Terry Smith your principal comparator that many of us do. Terry has invested in tech stock in recent years and seen his global fund improve accordingly. You still remain tech light. Any thoughts? Uh, you know, it's it's it, it's it's trite for me to say this, but 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 I, I I will say you know we we have huge admiration for 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 Fundsmith um, and yeah you know Terry's taken this to a to a level i mean it, you know I, I, and i think I, I i think what he's offering investors is so admirable i really do um you know I, I, on the specific point i i i'm just i will just confine my comments to um to to finsbury which which you know as as we've remarked that is a that is a uk oriented strategy where I'm being measured against the UK stock market. And there there just aren't the same opportunities in tech in the UK as as are available globally. And and you know I'm not here to talk about our global strategy. Perhaps Michael Linsell will come and do one of these interviews with you uh, you know whenever you want. But 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 the, there is more pure tech in our in our global fund. But I, I, I want to reiterate, and this doesn't guarantee success, but I just want to re- reiterate what I said earlier. Um, over 40% of Finsbury's portfolio is made up of companies that are either definitely already or we hope will be able to demonstrate that they are using technology in a way that can create substantive new value for their for their owners and uh, uh, absolutely that 40% and it does include uh, you know it does include the london stock exchange i mean it, 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 Relics is another major, major company that that that's both a major company and a major holding for us. Um, the, the these again, the, these are globally competitive, substantive businesses utilizing technology to materially enhance the value of their products and services um, to their customers and. Yeah, I, 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 I'm put it put it this way. I really, really want this portfolio to comprise companies that are being advantaged rather than disadvantaged by technology change. Okay, thank you. 
Um, an interesting question, recognising the kind of uh, overseas earnings um, influence on the FTSE 100. Um, how will your portfolio be affected if there is a strong rise in the value of the pound? Uh, you know, obviously that's a hypothetical, and I might just sit astride my high horse here and say, whoever asked that question, I sincerely hope that they never make an investment decision based on their guess about what might happen to a currency, because um, it's absolutely a losing bet, in my experience and opinion. And we pay effectively zero attention to the volatility or even the direction of currencies, not least because we haven't the faintest idea, but also because, again, in my observation, owning value-creating companies is much, much more important than getting their domicile or the currency that they're measured by right. So, you know, as we speak right now, Diageo is probably down a bit relative to where it might be this year because the pound's strong and people know that Diageo is a, it is a big overseas earner and, you know, it, it does have a short-term impact. But my goodness, would, would you, you know, going back to this, this idea about thinking almost dynastically about allocating capital, would, would you, if your family was lucky enough to own 100% of Diageo, would you sell it because you thought the pound was going to be strong for, you know, six months or a year? Or No, no, no. <laughs> own something valuable and the currency will take care of itself. Yeah. I do, though, I am going to say something here, which maybe is even slightly contradictory from what I've just said. Um, but I say this almost from, you know, a visceral gut sense rather than an intellectual one. Um, I, I think you've 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 alluded earlier, Robert. The, the, the um, sorry, Richard. The, the um, I know another. I, I know Robert Hunter. Forgive me, Richard. Um, the UK has been a tough stock market for for a number of years. There there are there are a variety of factors. Um, one of them, though, is that it's been an easy short for global hedge funds. The political uncertainty surrounding the B word aligned with that big bull market in the United States has made it so easy to short London stocks and buy stuff elsewhere around the world. What happened on Christmas Eve, i.e. that deal, takes away one of the supports for that let's sell London argument. Um, and I, I think that, let, let's just say that the question turns out to be a well-founded question. Let's just say the pound does go up a bit because that uncertainty has been removed. Um, actually, personally, I would expect that we will see global asset allocators and also global businesses keen to invest in the UK, in UK quoted companies also investing in UK industrial opportunities because 
the, the concerns about the currency have 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 have, have diminished. So yeah, you know, I, I um sorry, I, let me just complete the thought. Um yeah, you know, I I I've got a strategic role in our global fund. Um Linsell runs it day to day, but you know, I've got a strategic role there. I look at the share price performance and the valuation of things we own in our global fund and compare them to similar businesses that we own in our UK fund. And my jaw drops, you know, the gap between the share price performances and the valuations has got wide. Doesn't mean it has to shut today, but there's definitely in my opinion, a latency in sterling equity assets because it's been an easy short for a long time. Thank you for that, Nick. And finally, uh, a customer question which contains a compliment. What makes a great fund manager and how can we as private investors identify those traits that may lead to sustained outperformance? Luck. <laughs> That's certainly a trait. It's certainly a trait. You know, I, I, markets are always changing and, 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 you know, a danger in, you know, what we do at Linsell Train, you know, a danger, you know, you are conditioned by your experience and all, all you can do is try and do your best relative to your experience um, and you and your judgment, and that may or may not prove relevant in a given set of market market conditions. Um, financial history is very short, you know, a couple of hundred years max. So it's not long enough to be certain about winning traits or winning strategies, in, in my opinion. All, all you can do is do your best with you know, your... You, Actually, do your best with your own emotional makeup. You know that's 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 important as well. Um, I I um, when 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 we, we we occasionally every two or three years we 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 will hire um, younger people to to come and join our team and. Um, yeah, I, I guess the the primary quality, the primary raw quality we're looking for in a uh, uh, a young person is, is is simply stated curiosity, intellectual curiosity. Um, yeah, wanting wanting to understand why things have happened the way they are, and just wondering what will happen next. Um, but you know that's. I don't know whether that's. I mean, you definitely can't, as an investor, you can't judge that really very, very readily in a, a professional investor. And whether whether that whether that makeup whether whether that's relevant for the next decade, I, I, I don't I don't know. Maybe out and out appetite for risk taking. Maybe that's what you need over the next decade. I, you know, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Um, no, that's a very fair comment. Um, and unfortunately, I have to say that uh, time is now uh, against us. So many thanks, many thanks indeed, Nick, uh, for your time with us today and for your genuinely valuable um, and insightful thoughts. And thank you for listening. I'll be back next Tuesday with another Richard Hunter interview. Bye for now. Bye.